Jaquanda Johnson is the Flint journalist who started her own publication to tell the stories of the Flint water crisis that no one else was bothering to tell. On this episode of Created Equal, my conversation with Flint journalist Jaquanda Johnson. We founded on the principle We hold these truths to be self-evident That all men are created equal That all men are created equal My next guest is Jaquanda Johnson. She is the founder of Flint Beat, and she is also its publisher. Uh, she's a journalist who's got uh, almost two decades of experience, and she was covering Flint water crisis here when she decided that Flint needed its own publication focused only on Flint, and Flint Beat was launched uh, March 13th, 2017, to fill that need. Jaquanda, welcome. Thank you. Tell me about when you started to cover the Flint water crisis. Um, I've had the privilege of working in three newsrooms, including my own, um, since the water crisis. When I first became concerned about the water, it was in 2014. We had a series of boil advisory alerts throughout the city. Um, it was confusing, and I happened to be at NBC 25. And I remember being in a newsroom and a council person called and there was a oil advisory alert, a council person called and he was saying his nephew had drank the water and he was throwing up blood. Uh, the well producer, Matt Bliker, he, he looked at me and he said, this water thing is not over. He's like, this is just the beginning. And we kept an eye on it locally. All the local newsrooms, they were writing collections of stories about this rash of oil advisory alerts. It just wasn't getting picked up nationally. After that, you know, like I have family, predominantly on the north end of Flint. And when the crisis did catch national attention and lead kids started rolling out, my grandfather is almost 90 and he lives on the north end of Flint in the first ward. And I remember going to his home, his lead kit was on the counter. And I'm like, hey, granddaddy, you know, uh, you're not getting your water tested. He said, I stopped using the water when it connected to the Flint River. You know, being a person from Flint, I'm 43, uh, born and raised in the Flint area. I just remember the stories and that we would say about the Flint River and the things that you could find in the Flint River and just, you know, from being around here. And so I guess in one breath, I was surprised that he hadn't tested his water. But then in another, I wasn't surprised that he didn't want to drink the water, yeah. you know. And so my journey really was from a, a very, very personal experience as I watched my family go through it or a cousin calling me first thing in the morning because she woke up and someone overnight had delivered all these cases of water and left them on their porches. You know, in one breath, she said she wanted to be grateful, but in another way, she was embarrassed about this whole crisis and the struggles that Flint was going through. Or um, my ex-husband, he lived in the city of Flint and I remember getting the mail and my daughter had a food benefit card. I hadn't applied for it, but somewhere in there, it was noted that she spent time in the city of Flint. I live two minutes outside of the city now. And so in feeling angry about that and being from this community and seeing people out and going to these meetings, and some going as a community member, but not necessarily media. So I've been privy to a lot of behind-the-door conversation as we took this journey. It's just been a, a roller coaster of emotion, and even being here, because 
I read Dr. Mona's book. You know, it gave me an excuse to read a book because this has worked for me. <laughs> and um, I read the book and now I'm sitting here, I'm kind of, I'm shaking a little because I just started taking this journey and it reopened up some wounds and emotions that I didn't know were still there and that I have to still kind of navigate through. So, so uh, in February of 2016, you were quoted uh, in Media Matters for America saying the Flint water crisis went under the media's radar. It was lost in what's trending on Twitter, who liked what on Facebook, and the next pop and pics on Instagram. Journalists have become lazy. We wait for the obvious and jump on trends. Flint's water crisis didn't make the social media cut. So it was missed. It didn't make headlines like the Charleston killings, Ferguson protests or over Michael Brown's death, or Ed Garner's choking. Is it racism? Is it classism? Is it both or neither? I don't know. So that's three years ago. Three years ago. Yeah. Um, I still had feel, to fire in me. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel the same way now about, uh, about how the media has handled this? Of course I do. Yeah. And I'm part of the media. Um, I know that there are things that need to be foiled, issues that need to be looked at. There's so many health issues in Flint right now that no one is looking at that it's, it's just a daunting task. I'm one person in my newsroom. And last year we had the Society of Environmental Journalists here. And I gave a tour of the city of Flint and I took them on a real tour. We went on the east side, we went on the north side, they went to a senior center. And what I told these journalists, there's about 40 of them, and I said, you know, I said, I'm glad you're here. I said, but if you do not tell these stories, if you do not write about this, you may as well not be here at all. I think I've seen maybe five stories with 40 news reporters. I have 40 news reporters standing in a, a yard on the north end of Flint talking to one of the youngest legionnaires cases that the city's had. She has since died, you know, so I feel like as a journalist, no, we're not doing our jobs. We, we use excuses. We talk about management and our hands being tied with metrics and analytics. But we got this beautiful thing called the Internet. You know, um, if we just took a little time and used our voices to shed light on these issues and tapped into the resources we have, we could be doing a much better job. So that's a great way to segue to talk about Flipbeat, uh, which you founded to, to try to do this differently, right? Yeah, I'm trying. Um, again, <laughs> I'm a newsroom of one. Uh, on occasion, I do get freelancers. I have a really, really great young man named Andrew Roth that covers state news for me. He's just awesome. That was sent by way of another local journalist, Tom Sumner. I have a list of about 40 stories right now that I've had for about a year and a half. And they're still not. 40 stories you feel like need to be done. They need to be done. Yeah. And they, no other news outlet has did them. We have three TV stations here in Flint. We have one legacy newspaper here in Flint, myself, and I can think of three other niche publications here in the city of Flint. And it's just not being done. The stories are just not being reported. As, as it's been said many times before, Flint is not just in a water crisis. We have other issues in this city, and I just don't think that we're doing our jobs. So talk about the effect of your journalism, which is now separate from 
you know, the legacy uh, institutions and organizations in town, is it having an effect on, the, on, on those organizations? Is it, is it saying to them effectively, you know, uh, change the way you do things and maybe pay more attention to these things? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I work well with one TV news station here. So, so this is what happens to me. I get stories all the time. I get phone calls. I get emails. And I'm not one of those publishers or media owners that really cares that I have to be first or I have to be the only publication to do this story. And so when I don't have time, I share. And so I have one TV station that worked really well with me. If I called a reporter, gave a tip, they will get on it. I just don't see them as my competition. And it's because of the way I approach news. I'm a Flint girl. And so I start with Flint and then I work my way up. For me, what's important is the resident's voice, the community's voice, not what elected officials have to say, even though I love the congressman. Um, I just feel like that these are the people who haven't been heard. And I never say, uh, Voiceless. They have a voice. They just didn't have a platform. I serve as that platform, that vehicle, so that if they have an issue, they can be heard. I have literally written a story about a bacterial issue in Flint that no other agency was covering, called the health department, was lied to, and then the next day they drop a press release about that bacteria. You know, I, it's just so much that needs to be done here. I don't know what effect I have outside of, I remember covering City Hall, working my butt off and looking up and finally they started sending someone to. Hmm. You know, I had a journalist tell me, well, you've been covering City Hall every day. <laughs> it seems like they finally sent me out here, you know, which is great because I just want the city covered. I just want us to have an impact. I just want us to empower and inform the community. And so I guess for me, I don't have the agendas. I don't I'm not making the salaries, you know, that some newsroom managers make. I, um, I don't really care about the clicks and the metrics. I don't. You know, I care that when I go to a meeting or if I'm out in the community with my kids, somebody says, hey, I read that story. Or because I read that story. Or I didn't know that. That's really how I gauge things. And I'm out there enough to be able to do it that way. Do you think... Um uh, the crisis itself might not have unfolded the way it did if media had been paying t attention differently than they were? That's a loaded one. Um, <laughs> I know it would have. It's, at one point, we had something called investigative reporting, right? You know, and it was a beautiful thing. You know, as a journalist, she was a watchdog over these systems. And... You didn't care if ads were selling. You were just out there to make a difference in communities. I think that when the talks of the switch started, when it literally, when they say, we're considering doing this, as journalists, we should have dug deeper, including the history of Flint. I mean, some stuff was too obvious. You know, um, the factories being here, the reasons why the city wasn't connected to the Flint River anyway. The river's already always been there, right? And so we, we should have been asking those questions. And we weren't. And now we're here. And I say we. I include myself. 
at the time I was not in Michigan, but I include myself in that. I should have asked more questions too. In 2014, I was working in a newsroom. Uh, you recently wrote about uh, Mayor Karen Weaver, who is uh, seeking re-election. Um, has she put in enough effort to, to deal with this crisis? There you go again. Um, <laughs> you wrote about it. <laughs> I don't. I, I wrote so many stories, uh, <laughs> but I think that no. I, and then I saw transparency there. I, I think that her coming in, she was very green, new to politics. You know, I think that there was so much damage done and so much baggage there that it was impossible for her to come in as green as she was, as new as she was, and tackle a problem like this. I feel the same about some of the people she put in place in departments. This was a crisis that no one had a book to navigate through this. And if you were not a person that already knew the systems and how to work it, that made it even worse. Like, I'm still confused as to why Flint's infrastructure is not done. You know, what's taking so long replacing these pipes? You know, why do we keep going left and right when there's this straight line? You know, just replace the pipes. I think that if the people who did the damage had to do the repair, we might be in a better place. You know, I think that that should have really been state-led for that to happen. But it's, we're in a situation of learning when we need experts. Expand the, 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 the critique there. To, to leadership more generally, uh, oftentimes we see crisis inspire leadership or new leadership uh, in communities, and that new leadership comes forward and, and does things differently and, and maybe gets things uh, done more effectively. Has that started to happen here in Flint, in your opinion? Are you anticipating that it will? Oh, yeah. I think the crisis birthed some really, really strong community activists. People who probably didn't know they had it in them until the crisis happened, right? We started to see new faces, new people popping up at city council, folks protesting. They're just ready. But they're the same people today. It's like the same faces that I saw when this crisis caught in the national spotlight are the same faces that I see at every meeting, on every panel, <laughs> every protest. You know, I would have liked it to expand more, but they are there. They are working. They need self-care. Um, remember that. If you see an activist, give them a hug um, because this is hard work. We're talking about a city of almost 100,000 people, almost. Those numbers have dropped. Um, and maybe, maybe 15 to 20 strong activists that they even have like these inner turmoils and things and can't come together and work. And there's all these <laughs> little different fights that I see, you know, is, but this is one young lady, um, Ariana Hawk. Ariana lived on the south side of Flint in a um, low income apartment complex. Since the crisis, her son has been featured on Time Magazine, she pops up at City Hall, 
protesting. She's out there with get out to vote. You know, it's it's a transition that in her life, she probably never expected it to happen. You know, she was living on the south side, a low income mother on the south side of Flint. And then a water crisis happened and it hit her family really hard. You know, so, so to see young people like that, vocal, still doing her, still rocking her Jordans with her little flavor, you know, but she's making an impact and she's reaching people her age. She's reaching millennials that some of us, we just can't reach them. Uh, before we started uh, today, you were talking to me about how big of an issue crime is mm-hmm. in Flint. Talk, and that that is another issue that's not getting the attention uh, that it should um, talk about uh, talk about what's going on there. I think it's getting attention, but not how we should approach it. One of our goals at Flint Beat was to introduce solutions journalism to the city, and that is not just focusing on a problem, but seeing how the community is maybe coming together to solve it, or how other communities are solving it. And so we have a page dedicated to gun violence. And in it, we wrote a story about uh, cure violence and violence interrupters and what this looks like and how it's being implemented in other communities. I think that, of course, we see the stories that say, you know, X, Y, and Z was shot on this day, they're dead. But we don't see, oh, maybe we need to take this to the community and have conversation and start organizations you know, right in the thick of these communities with people who are from those communities, people that are recognized in those communities, people that neighbors know so that we can decrease this. Like, what does that look like? We're not even looking at things like that. We automatically look at things like, we need more police. That might not be the answer. And in my research, I'm finding out it isn't. You know, we just need a stronger community base and support right there where it's happening. Because one neighbor, one person in the community could find out that somebody is having an issue with another person in the community and they might be able to intercede. But as it stands right now, we keep looking at more police, more service people, instead of us taking back our communities, the places we live in where this is happening. You know, they're looking at it from afar. They're looking from downtown, right? You know, we don't even have enough police officers to <laughs> patrol the whole city. So they're looking from afar and we need to do it right there where it is, the heart of the problem and step up and take care of our neighborhoods. That's the only way it's going to get done. Like, I, Go ahead. Dr. Mona in her book, she said, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. And she quoted Dr. Seuss the Lorax. That's a powerful statement. If they are not like you, if they haven't been through your journey, they might not understand you or what you need to get the job done, right? So ain't nobody better to do it but you. And so we have to start thinking like that instead of looking for these officials and these people to take care of us, we gotta take care of each other. It starts with our neighborhoods and our communities and us. Okay, Jaquandrick Johnson of Flintby, thanks very much for being here. (laughs) On the next episode of Created Equal, we'll talk with the first mayor in the country to successfully push to remove all lead water lines in his city. 
our kids are drinking this water. So we just assume the answer would be everything's fine. That here's the data, here's the testing. Surely we're testing the water for lead. But actually there was a real issue and we were convinced and so we decided the lead pipes had to go. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Tintinale and I support WDET. I think it's a, such a big part of my life, so I give as much as I can, which would be kind of like a cable bill or a phone bill because whenever I'm in my car, it's what I listen to. But you know, it's all relative to what works for you. If you're a struggling student, maybe you can only give $10 a month, but every bit helps because it's contributing towards the great programming that this station offers. And I think we all would have different lives and be less connected if we didn't have it. So it's important to support in any way we can to keep it going. My name is Elizabeth Tintinale, and I'm on Team DET. You depend on WDET to bring you the information of our community. And to bring you that, WDET relies on you. Make your year-end gift now at WDET.org. Virg Bonero was the mayor of Lansing when it became the first city in America to replace all of its lead water lines. This was before the world knew about the Flint water crisis. On this episode of Created Equal, my conversation with Bonero about why he spearheaded the effort and the challenges he faced. It was founded on the principle We hold these truths to be self-evident That all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. Even as the disastrous water crisis in Flint was unfolding, there was a city in Michigan that was well underway to replacing the lead service lines that caused so many problems. Lansing, led by Mayor Verge Bonero, raised the money and took 12 years to rip out lead service lines and replace them. And now it's one of the only cities in America and the only one here in Michigan to have achieved that environmental reform. How did they do it? And why? Joining us now to talk about Lansing and that reform is the city's former mayor, Verge Bernero. Well, thanks, Stephen. How are you? How are you? I'm good. It's been a really long time since I've had a, a chance to sit and talk with you. It was really, I guess, the last time would have been when you were running for governor in 2010. Uh, we had many conversations about your ideas. But, I, but one of the things I don't remember talking to you about then was this project, which was already underway at that point, this idea of taking out uh, lead lines and, and replacing them. Let's go back to uh, the beginning and tell us why you decided this was something that Lansing needed to do. Well, Stephen, it was part luck and part pluck. A determined group of citizens, and I give credit to citizens act, citizen activists, and citizens came up when I was actually still in the state Senate and brought this to our attention uh, and my staff, I had excellent staff uh, in the person of Randy Hannon, who was my chief of staff. I give him a lot of credit. But uh, these citizens came up with their concerns about lead in the water. And we started asking questions. And Stephen, we started off asking the experts and expecting the answers that would basically calm us and the citizens down. Mm. Um, but but it's important for elected. This is why there's such an important symbiosis between activists and good public officials. And good public officials, which I think the vast majority strive to be, uh, actually even in both parties, um, 
most public officials want to do good. They don't want to incite panic. They don't want to overreact, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so we go to the powers that be. We go to the environmental people. We go to the public health people and say, hey, we've got this letter from a constituent. We've got, we've had these meetings. They're raising questions about lead in the water. Uh, and, you know, we're drinking this water. Our kids are drinking this water. So we just assumed, Stephen, we assumed the answer would be everything's fine, that here's the data, here's the testing. Surely we're testing the water for lead. Um, and we were assured by the water in industrial establishment that, uh, like the military industrial, uh, <laughs> uh, I guess, um, the institutions, that, we, that everything was fine and that, that if you're going to worry about lead, you should worry about lead paint. That the issue is lead paint, it's not lead in the water. And, and we kept saying, but what about the lead in the water? Okay, we understand that lead paint. And as a county commissioner, we worked on that. I mean, we've continued to work on abatement, lead abatement in the paint in the older homes, et cetera. But what about lead in the water? And uh, what is the safe standard? Well, there is no safe standard. The safe standard for kids is zero. But the standard that Michigan allows and that the federal government allows is 20 parts per billion even though there's no safe level for pregnant women or for, or for, or for children. Little kids, yeah. But uh, anyway, we were assured everything was fine and that we should focus on lead paint. Uh, the more we dug into it, we didn't get answers. We got more and more questions. And at the time, we Googled it and we researched it and we found Mark Edwards and we found what was happening in Washington, D.C., that there was a big uh, lead in the, in the water uh, problem there that was being exposed by, at that time, the leading expert, Mark Edwards. And we said, could this be the case here in Lansing? And so we, we kept digging and we kept asking questions. And basically, uh, we got a lot of whataboutism and look over here and look over there and don't worry about the lead and copper rule. You know, the testing is fine. Well, we said, well, what is the methodology of the testing? When we started asking about the methodology of the testing, we became even more concerned because it allowed this first draw. It allowed certain batches. It was a very small batch test, very small, uh, not representative, we thought scientifically. And then it allowed a lot of uh, moving around with the test results. And if you didn't like the first test, you could, you could do some other tests and so on. And it was a very small number of tests. So uh, the more we asked, the more questions we got. And, and we just were not satisfied. And we just kept digging deeper. Uh, and we were told by many experts to just butt out. You know, you're going to incite panic. Uh, don't worry about it. Uh, we're, you know, worry about lead paint. Uh, in fact, the governor's head of environmental policy, a guy you would know, uh, told us, I think he even wrote an article in the paper mm -hmm. saying that we might start up a scare, Dave Dempsey. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of even Democrats, whatever, it didn't matter about party, but there was this link up between the public health officials and the environmental officials who had just decided, they had just made a sort of a pact or whatever. I mean, I think they teach it in schools, <laughs> sort of like economics, um, you know, that, 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 Certain things are conventional knowledge and conventional wisdom was... And just don't worry about it. Yeah, right? you don't worry about lead in the water. The lead in the water is fine. But actually, there was a real issue, and we were convinced, and so we decided the lead uh, pipes had to go, and we got a new director at the Lansing Board of Water and Light when I became mayor, and we got busy doing it. In over 12 years, we spent $42 million. We yeah. raised fees, and we got rid of all the lead. So let's talk about how you got that money. I mean, right now, there's a new set of lead and copper rules in Michigan that's going to require cities to replace these lines uh, over the next uh, several years. And you've got a lot of water systems who are saying, it's just too expensive. We can't really afford to do that. So tell us how you got $42 million to do it in Lansing. We have a municipal power company, the Board of Water and Light, and it's it's mainly Lansing and a couple of the communities around Lansing that it provides electricity and water, and they do a phenomenal job, and the water is very highly rated. They set rates, and so they slowly increased rates. We did it over 12 years. So, so Stephen, when we talk about $42 million, it's not like they had to raise $42 million overnight, but they did over 12 years, and they it was a pay-as-you-go. So they raised rates to pay for that. It was built in, and it was no fuss, no must. They, you know, there was no protests about it. Um, we 
we just made it a public priority and and we did it. And and by the way, the community's response that you talk about that they can't pay. Um, okay, I understand it completely. I was mayor for twelve years. I know how tough it is to make that budget balance. And that budget has to be balanced. You don't we don't print money like the federal government. I mean, it has to be balanced year over year. And the municipal power companies they have to be balanced. But but their response has been lame at best. Their response, the local response, they were suing the state to try to roll back this new environmental standard. Yes. Governor uh, Whitmer, to her credit, you know, came in and said, we can't have another Flint. We've got to act on this. And 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 actually, the proposal is very reasonable. Uh, and I wish there was more from the state and leadership from the federal government. I mean, the fact is, we need this to be a priority. And the much promised infrastructure package mm-hmm. that was supposed to come from the federal government, where is it? And, and when we talk about infrastructure, of course, the pipes, the things under the ground, the things you can't see matter greatly. Yeah. You know, I appreciate the governor's uh, thing about fix the roads. The roads do need to be fixed. Those are things that people see that are obvious, but the things under the ground also can hurt you. And and they have, uh, as evidenced by Flint. And so people should not be complacent. And so the the regulation that the state put into effect is, is fairly modest. And yet the cities were suing until last week when the, a judge threw them out. Yeah. And, and, and rightly so, because when it comes to public health, the state has an absolute right to do this. And again, I hope the state can come forward with some additional money. The governor put some money out uh, in her budget. The legislature needs to come together and make this a priority. The Congress needs to make it a priority. It's a vital need. There is no safe level of lead. People need to know what's in their water. I would suggest that they do. I would suggest that they test their water um, because even today, these tests are not that great. And the Michigan standard, even though they can say it's the toughest in the nation, it's it's only lowering, uh, going down to, I think, 12 parts per billion uh, in like 2025. So how many kids are going to be poisoned between now and 2025? The fact is there is no safe level of lead. It is in the water. The parchment example that is in the press right now, a community outside of Kalamazoo, demonstrates that we're just one chemical change away from a lead crisis. If you have lead pipes in your community, these are, look, these can be well-run. I'm not, I'm not trying to indict the water utilities, okay, Stephen. I'm just saying it's a real threat. Look at communities, not just in Michigan. Look at Pittsburgh. Look at well-run facilities. Pittsburgh is a well-run city. Great mayor, you know, good program, good system, but any chemical change, and that's what caused, that's what triggered the problems in Flint. Yes, the change to the and the change to the water chemistry, and these uh, they come in there and they change, and they say, oh, you can save some money, you can use this chemical instead of that chemical. The point is, it in in the parchment example, they flushed the pipes to take care of the PFAS problem. Okay, we got this PFAS problem. So you solve the PFAS problem, you create a lead problem because you start monkeying with these lead pipes. You start dealing with the filtration system and the, the, uh, the buffers that have been built up in those pipes. And so you put a new chemical in there and it, it eats away at, the, at this uh, buffer and exposes the lead. Yeah, yeah. And so you've got to get rid of the lead pipes. The only answer is to get rid of those lead pipes. And I encourage people, know what your pipes are and do your testing. And for God's sakes, get a filter if you've got lead pipes and keep that filter up to date. You still have lots of water officials and politicians statewide who doubt the wisdom or the efficacy, I guess, of, of this kind of work. Uh, it, it does take sort of a counter thinking, I guess, to say, yeah, it's expensive. Yeah, it's disruptive, but we have to do this to keep people safe. Stephen, the people most at risk tend to be people in older neighborhoods, in poorer neighborhoods, uh, more economically challenged neighborhoods. And I'm sorry to say that, you know, these are oftentimes forgotten citizens. Uh, some of these officials are in denial. Did Have we learned nothing from Flint? 
you know, when Flint happened, I heard national pundits, I heard people in the state, out of the state, oh, how could this possibly happen? Oh, this must be, all various conspiracy theories. It's a conspiracy of silence. It's the conspiracy of denial. It's the conspiracy of we've got better things to do. We've got more important issues. That's the conspiracy, the conspiracy of I'm too busy, I'm too broke. And our children will suffer. And the kids at the lower end, and they're the kids who deserve the boost. It's the opposite. It's just like our school systems. You know, it's, it's terrible that the quality of education should be determined by your zip code. And now the quality of your drinking water is going to be determined by your... This is outrageous. People should be up in arms. And it's citizen activism that's going to turn this around, that's going to make the politicians sit up and pay attention. The fact that certain cities, including Detroit, that their leading response is to go to court and fight a, a state standard that is designed to improve safety, to give people clean water, for God's sakes. During the Flint crisis, I heard so many sanctimonious, pious speeches about, oh, how could we allow these poor children? Oh, the children deserve better. Okay, yes, it's true. Yes. But Flint, you got to do something about it. What the hell are you doing about it? Yeah. What are you doing in communities around the, instead of looking the other way and trying to fight progress, you know, join hands with the governor, join hands, call your state legislatures, get a symposium together and figure out how you're going to pay for this, which must be done. There is no safe level. The damage that can be done to young brains, to young children, to pregnant women is permanent. Uh, and let's so let's get on it. Like Dr. Mona says in her book, it was courageous citizen leadership and leaders like Dr. Mona. It wasn't the politicians mm. at the front of the parade that fixed this, yeah. including in Lansing. It was citizens that grabbed my attention, that wouldn't let go. And then the more me and my staff looked into it, the more we had to question the experts. And we found our own experts and we found Dr. Mark Edwards. We flew him in and, and he was counter-establishment. He was, uh, you know, against the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom was pay no attention to the water, don't worry about the water, and that's the same thing you're hearing now. And the very modest proposal that's come out of the state that says you could, the cities must develop a plan to fix their pipes, to remove those lead pipes, over 20 years, Stephen, over 20 years. And they're fighting that? Yeah, yeah. When you did this in Lansing, did you go all the way up to we did, the house? right into the house, yeah. and that's the way it must be done. Uh, it's a key, key issue. Because if all the city does if is is replace it's if they don't own now in Lansing we own the whole the whole thing right up to the house up in, to the in house, no, okay. most cities in many cities they own uh, up to the sidewalk or whatever and then from the sidewalk to the house it's the per persons and if you if the city only does its thing there's the chance that you actually again disrupt the buffer. And you actually send lead, you actually open up uh, another avenue, as happened in Flint with the change with the chemistry. Uh, this could be a physical disruption, not a chemical disruption in the lead service line, but it would be a physical disruption. And unless you replace that entire, remove all the lead, you're potentially actually shaking things loose and exposing and, and, and creating, at least for a time, yeah. putting, putting that family worse. in jeopardy. So in, and this was an issue in Pittsburgh where they had to uh, get new legislation. Because the utilities couldn't go in and fix that. They had to get new legislation, which the Speaker of the House uh, in Pennsylvania tried to block on a political basis for a while. And eventually, again, the activism and, and just the, the, the moral imperative of doing the right thing uh, took hold. Hmm. And so we have to make sure it's done right. Virg Bernero is the former mayor of Lansing and spearheaded that city's effort to become the first city in the country to replace all of its lead water lines. On the next episode of Created Equal, we'll hear from the Virginia Tech water quality expert who confirmed lead was poisoning Flint's water. And unfortunately, the agencies responded 
responsible for causing the problem were put in charge of investigating the harm done and the solutions. And frankly, they, they lied. They, they covered this problem up completely with falsified scientific reports. I'm Mara, and I'm from West Bloomfield. I think it's a responsibility and an investment that you make in yourself to be more informed and educated about your community in a way that you can be confident that you are informed. So when I listen to WDET, I'm confident that I'm informed and that I have the right information. In this new age of anybody can report on anything. This has already been fact-checked, like that work is done. And um, if that's something that you care about, you should donate. I'm Mara and I depend on WDET. You depend on WDET to bring you the information of our community. And to bring you that, WDET relies on you. Make your year-end tax-deductible gift now at WDET.org. You have to decide whether the people you're supporting are relevant to your existence, to your life. And so the things that I listen to on WDET have to do with things that are going on in the city, things that are important to the city, things that are important to me. And I would suggest that if you want to keep that, you should continue or start giving to the WDET. My name is Jan Pavlicek, and I am on Team DET. Give now at WDET.org or by calling 800-959-9338. Mark Edwards confirmed that Flint residents were drinking poison from their taps. He also created the Flint Water Study, an independent research team dedicated to resolving infrastructure issues that affect water supplies. On this episode of Created Equal, my conversation with Virginia Tech water quality expert, Mark Edwards. We founded on the principle, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. Yeah. In 2004, the Washington Post reported that a change in water treatment chemicals at the Washington, D.C. aqueduct four years earlier had inadvertently triggered the absorption of lead from the district's aging lead service lines and pipes into older homes. Before he played a vital role in the Flint water crisis, our next guest was also a key figure in this story. And he joins us now, Professor Mark Edwards. Let's go back to that time in Washington, D.C. Tell us what happened uh, and what role you played in helping that community grapple with uh, a threat to clean water. It was late 2000, and they made what they thought was an innocent change to water chemistry. They changed from chlorine to chloramine in order to keep the bacteria levels low in the water. And the lead started falling off the pipe. And little did we know at the time, chlorine was keeping lead on the pipe. The science on that was known by a EPA researcher, but really no one else. And so when the chlorine was removed, the lead started to fall off. And D.C. is not a state, and so the EPA has completely responsibility for the water quality problems there. There's no state Department of Environmental Quality, and of course the Army Corps of Engineers 
treats the water, and so it was a problem owned completely by the federal government. And unfortunately, they covered the problem up rather than telling the public. And there were three whistleblowers who tried to alert the public from within the agencies about the dangers of the lead in water in D.C. And this was in the White House. This was in the Congress. And uh, it got covered up until early 2004 when the Washington Post got a hold of the story and moms figured out on their own that their kids were getting lead poison. This was a water crisis that you have been quoted as saying was about 20 to 30 times larger than Flint. There was more lead poisoning, more exposure of people. I'm not sure people really realize that, that this was a very big deal in in the nation's capital. It was, and unfortunately, the agencies responsible for causing the problem were put in charge of investigating the harm done and the solutions, and frankly, they they lied. They, They covered this problem up completely with falsified scientific reports, and this was very traumatic for me to observe because I believe in science and I believe in, you know, the importance of government agencies, the environmental policemen to protect us, but... They were so involved in uh, causing the problem and in the cover-up, they became environmental criminals. And this this problem, the extent of it, the health harm, wasn't known until a bipartisan congressional hearing in 2010. And by that point, I'd worked on the problem for more than seven years and spent probably 30 hours a week volunteering and spending my own my family's own money to expose this. Fast forward a little to Flint. Uh, what were you able to bring to the conversation about what was happening in Flint that you'd learned in, in Washington, D.C.? Did this make what you saw in Flint easier to get your mind around? Did it make solutions to the problem more evident to you? Yeah, I think so. The the most important thing was I learned you can't reason with unreasonable people, even if they are in roles of government science agencies such as EPA Reason, Region 5 or Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, and that if they've gone unscientific and if they've, you know, been involved in causing a problem, they're not good people to have on the job to admit there is a problem or expose the extent of harm done. So, we didn't waste any time trying to reason with unreasonable people. We set up a web page to kind of fight this asymmetrical science war because what do you do when environmental policemen become the environmental criminal? We haven't figured out what to do with policing in communities when policemen are criminals other than body cameras and you know other things. So it's a, it's a very difficult problem to deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, the accountability question um, is is the one that I think ties these two crises together in a way that uh, that uh, that others don't. What did DDC do to resolve the lead in the pipes, and what happened to the people who were responsible uh, for what happened there? Um, we, we've seen that play out very specifically here in Flint in ways that have left a lot of people wanting more. Is is that same process what happened in D.C.? No, D.C. was much worse. There were thousands of kids lead poisoned. There was increased rates of fetal death. There were higher rates of miscarriages. And because they were so effective in covering the problem up completely, realized for six years the official U.S. government opinion was that there was no harm done, remarkably. 
And by the time people realized harm was done in our paper in 2009 and the congressional hearing in 2010, statutes of limitations had run out. Ultimately, only five children got any kind of financial compensation for what occurred. The rest of the city, for their exposure, got not one penny, not an apology, nothing. Uh, The people who caused this problem were actually promoted and rewarded for what they did. And in fact, they are partly responsible for what happened in Flint. And the brave whistleblowers who laid down their professional lives to tell the public about the problem were were fired. And no one ever thanked them. So that didn't that isn't how it played out in Flint. You know, the the whistleblower at EPA Miguel Del Toro was closeted, was silenced, but he was ultimately put in charge of the EPA response. Susan Hedman resigned at EPA Region 5, and at least there were people charged for what happened. That did not happen in D.C. Uh, Whether we're going to get justice in Flint, that's, I guess, in the eye of the beholder. The people most responsible for this at MDQ plea bargain to misdemeanors that will go off their record in a matter of like a year. And so that's very controversial. And at the time, I think people were hoping the special prosecutor knew what they were doing, but I'm doubtful that was the case. Hmm. Mark, what led you uh, to conduct the Flint water study? Was it what happened in Washington, D.C.? It was. I had been working with Miguel Del Toro, the whistleblower within EPA Region 5, who was collaborating with Leon Walters, who had the two um, twins, and one of them had elevated blood lead. And they had figured all this out on their own, and this was early in 2015. And I was trying to work behind the scenes with Miguel to let the system work, to let EPA be the hero here and do their job. And unfortunately, that didn't pan out because he was retaliated against after he wrote his memo, alerting the world to the fact that Flint had no corrosion control. So at that point, we knew we were in a science war, and we launched the Flint Water Study. It was August uh, 2015. By that point, I'd been working with Leanne and Miguel for about four months. And yeah, we we put our Freedom of Information Act requests in with Kurt Guyette, and uh, we knew that time was of the essence. And that, you know, the, the scary thing was we were just proving the obvious, and that is if you don't follow federal law, as Miguel pointed out, you're going to have high lead in water and lead poison kids. And so, yeah, we worked with the residents to sample the city and prove what should have been obvious to, to anybody. Mm. Lead in water was high. Kids were getting hurt. So tell me about your initial reactions to what you were learning. I'm always really curious about how people uh, reacted when they saw that there was, there was something wrong with the, the, with the water in Flint. Yeah, given the experiences in D.C. and my anger that no one was held accountable in 2010, I'd been touring the country telling people that another Washington, D.C. was inevitable. So we were fully expecting a Flint to occur. It was just a matter of when and where. And so when it occurred, I I wasn't surprised. We had a plan in place, and we tried to work within the system to, again, let EPA do their job and MDQ do their job. And once that failed, it was, you know, we wasted no time to to launch our 
science war, if you will. Yeah. Uh, in fact, on page 132 of Dr. Monet Atisha's book, she says, in case there was any doubt about the urgency of the city's water situation, the headline of Edwards' report was bold and in all cop caps. If it were spoken, it would have been yelling, Flint has a very serious lead in water problems. So, I mean, it was immediately evident to you that... It was, and that was our first data. And, you know, I often say without data, you're just another person with an opinion. And so that's why we had to get that water data to prove that the claims that the water was just fine, that the state was making, were scientifically false. And and this gets to your assertion that this is a problem that can crop up anywhere. I mean, you have all of these aging infrastructures uh, that that require, if you're going to keep using them, extra measures. And you don't always have people in place who, who understand that you've got to do that. Indeed. And one example is Portland, Oregon, who has broken the law openly for the last 15 years and has had lead above the action level and People have complained, and, and no one seems to do anything about it. And so that's a good example. And I think one of the reasons that you know people people don't care as much is because it's an affluent city, and uh, if they want to go and poison themselves, it's you know kind of up to them. But EPA's look been looking the other way on that one for 15 years. Mark Edwards, a Virginia Tech professor who conducted the lead levels test of the water in Flint. It was really great to have you here with us. Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Elena Fruget, Jake Neer, and Anna Marie Seisling. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan, Rowan Niamisto, and Rasan Cherry. Senior editor and musical composer is Sam Bobian. Our digital and social media team is Maida Stangi, Shiraz Ahmed, and Tony Brown. I'm your host. Stephen Henderson. I'm Elizabeth Tintinale, and I live in Gross Point Park. I'm a big horror movie buff, and when I was turning on the radio during Halloween, John Moser's show that showed the vintage music was just perfect. Hearing a lot of that stuff on the radio, it's just like, it's the best way, I don't know, it was the best way to spend an afternoon driving in a car is hearing all this good music on Halloween. I'm like, what other radio station would do that or would have the ability to play that stuff? My name is Elizabeth Tintinale, and I'm on Team DET. Make your year-end gift now at WDET.org or by calling 800-959-9338. I listen to WDET because I want to be aware of what's going on in the city, the state, and around the world. And it's a complicated world that we live in. And it takes a lot of work to pull all that together. And WDAT is a wonderful place to pull it all together. My name is Carl Cressman, and I'm on Team DET. Make your year-end gift now at WDET.org or by calling 800-959-9338.